Welcome to Kolisha, the podcast that gives Orthodox women a voice. Welcome back to Kolisha. I'm Rebecca Feldman, and today I wanted to continue our conversation about vaccines. So last week, we spoke with Blimey Marcus about vaccine research and the measles epidemic. And this week, I wanted to continue the conversation with an in-depth look at how vaccines work and also cover the topic of one of the more controversial vaccines, the flu vaccine. Because right now, we're in the middle of flu season and we're seeing a lot of the flu in both adults and kids. And unfortunately, many hospitalizations and deaths due to the flu, including pediatric deaths. So to do that, I invited two incredibly accomplished women, both of whom have a lot of expertise on this topic, Drs. Maureen Nemetsky and Dr. Elisa Minkin. So Dr. Maureen Nemetsky is a pediatric emergency medicine physician in New Jersey. She obtained her MD-PhD from NYU School of Medicine, and she did her pediatric residency at New York Presbyterian Weill Cornell Medical Center. She also did a fellowship in pediatric emergency medicine at the Children's Hospital at Montefiore. Dr. Nemetsky grew up in Brooklyn. She's one of six children and a mom of four children. All who are fully vaccinated, including the flu vaccine, every September. Dr. Lisa Minkin is a general pediatrician on Long Island, New York. She obtained her MD from NYU School of Medicine and completed her pediatric residency at Brookdale Hospital Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. She grew up in New Jersey as one of four children. She's a mom of six children, all of whom are also fully vaccinated, including the flu shot. So before I introduce our guests, um, I wanted to mention a project that doctors Nemetsky and Minkin have been working on together. So they see children with a diverse array of injuries and illnesses, but they would much rather prevent those illnesses than treat them, which is what led them to the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association's Preventive Health Program and to the Vaccine Task Force of the MS Initiative. As co-chairs of JOMA's Preventive Health Committee, Dr. Nemetsky and Minkin created JOMA's Vaccine Initiative Hotline to combat the recent measles outbreak among the Jewish community in New York. They have since expanded their focus into developing JOMA's new community health hotline to provide general health education uniquely tailored to the health needs of the Orthodox Jewish community. You can reach the hotline at 929-4-GESUNT or 929-443-9868 for a vast array of medical topics. And so, without further ado, welcome Dr. Nemetsky and Dr. Minkin. Thank you. Thank you. So, Dr. Nemetsky, I wanted to start with you. Um, can you give our listeners a little bit of a background as to um, why you got interested in vaccination? You're a pediatric emergency room doctor right now, and I'm sure you see a lot of different illnesses, a lot of different medical conditions. Why vaccination? What's the focus here? And um, can you tell us a little bit of background um, into what you do uh, on a daily basis at work and how vaccines play into that? Sure. So um, I'm an emergency medicine doctor and I do see basically sick children. And sometimes it, some of these illnesses are, are harder to treat than others. And it would always be better not to have to treat them at all to prevent them. So I'm interested in vaccines as a means of preventing them. I'd much, much rather children not have to come see me. And I first became interested in vaccine and vaccine science during my PhD. Um, the lab I was working in was um, a computer modeling, computational biology focused lab, and we had a lot of different projects with different partnering labs. So my project was on antimalarial drug design, but one of, one of the other big projects in the lab was actually working on an HIV vaccine. Um, and so just seeing what my lab mates and colleagues were doing and discuss, having discussions with them at lab meetings and research conferences sort of got me very interested in how vaccines are made, how they work, um, and what you, can, what, what you can and cannot vaccinate for at this point. So then when I was doing my pediatrics residency, so all, all of the residents in my program did research projects. So I decided to look at um, whether, whether people's religious background, sort of how it affected their views on vaccines. And what I found, sort of interviewing and surveying uh, parents in our hospital, mostly in the well-baby nursery, um, was that the same sort of misconceptions that you 
that you hear um, in secular communities about vaccines are also also exist in religious communities. The, a lot of the hesitancy and a lot of the misinformation out there is kind of the same across the board. And so I started, you know, thinking seriously about ways to combat that and how to give, you know, good evidence-based vaccine information to, to my patients and their families so that they wouldn't have to come and meet me in the ER. So you got interested in vaccines mostly um, in grad school, and it's very interesting how that played out in, the, in your job as an ER physician because you got to then see the other side and make those connections, which is fascinating. And Dr. Minkin, can you give us a little bit of background about um, what you do? And I know you're a general pediatrician. I'm sure you deal a lot with vaccinations in the office. And why did you decide to make this uh, sort of a focus of what you've been involved with lately, as opposed to, you know, say many of the other things you do at work? So for me, it's more personal. Um, I have six children and one of them is a 26 year old daughter with autism. And she got diagnosed on the later side. And this was around the same time that Andrew Wakefield had his study blaming um, the MMR vaccine for autism, which was a fraud, but we didn't know that for a while. And even though I'm a physician, I'm also a mom and I was scared. So it's been, uh, I've been following the whole um, movement, the, the movement about vaccines since then. Then um, in a previous practice, we had a lot of patients in this particular practice who um, chose to either not vaccinate or delay their vaccines. So these are conversations I've been having with a lot of frequency. And when we had the outbreak in New York of the measles and there was a lot of misinformation being spread around, um, I really wanted to be active in spreading correct information about vaccines. So, Dr. Minkin, what's very interesting to me is that you you mentioned your daughter with autism. You know, when I became involved a little bit with um, the vaccine task force last year um, and a whole bunch of uh, orthodox medical professionals got together to try to talk about what can be done about the measles outbreak and, you know, the optics of, of it being largely the from community um, and talk about possibly providing some education. Um, and I mentioned that I was doing this to a family member of mine um, who, who tends to doubt vaccines a lot. And I told her that, you know, there's a whole group of us together. And she said kind of sarcastically, like, oh, that's very nice. Well, I wonder if any of them has a child with autism. And at the time, I didn't know that you had a daughter with autism. And I've since found out there, there's actually several members of our group um, who have children with autism. So... Clearly, the the fact that you have a child with autism isn't um, isn't preventing you from vaccination. Quite the contrary, it's actually uh, something that has caused you to do more research and to gain a real good understanding of vaccination, and then to go ahead and promote vaccination. So you are, like you said, a parent as well as a physician, and you are promoting vaccines despite the fact that you have a child with autism. So can you talk to our listeners a little bit about, you know? the issues that people have trusting the pharmaceutical companies, especially when they have a child with uh, something like autism or maybe another condition that sometimes people talk about epilepsy or behavioral issues or, um, you know, just ADHD or there's a lot of different things that people have sort of started to link to vaccines, whether, you know, based on science or not. And um, this has just caused like this general sense of distrust. Can you talk about that a little bit, Dr. Minkin? So I think that we have a lot of conditions that we don't fully understand. You just mentioned a whole bunch. And we're definitely making a lot of these diagnoses. And I think that it's normal to want to know why, to want to get a sense of control. And I think that in one way, vaccines can be an easy target. It's something that you can blame and you can choose not to do. But these have all been studied, and there is no connection to vaccines. Okay, so Dr. Nemetsky, why is it, do you think, after doing all of your research on vaccines, that there's just been this widespread distrust of, you know, physicians, pharmaceutical companies, science, and what we're seeing is this really large online movement of people who are putting out information that 
you know, very often has no source. Sometimes there's a source quoted, but it's very old or outdated. Um, and people seem to just cling to that and, you know, develop this, this real strong sense of fear or, you know, just they, they're clinging to like bad information and then it's causing them to lose trust in, in a pediatrician that they might have had a good relationship with or just generally, you know, healthcare in general. What What's driving all this? So I think part of it is sort of a larger lack of trust that society in general has. Um, people don't tend to trust experts or government agencies or large companies these days. And some of that is well-founded and some of that isn't. Um, and then in terms of specifically trusting some of the scientific data out there is it's very hard to read through a scientific research article. It's very hard to understand the, some of the scientific data that's out there. Even with you know research backgrounds and graduate degrees, it takes a while to get through all of this. So if you don't have that kind of background, it can be very hard to sort through what's true and what isn't. There's a lot, like you said, there's a lot of information that anybody can claim to be an expert in anything and put information online or in in magazines or anywhere, and it can be very hard to figure out what's true and what isn't. Um, and some of and some of that definitely plays a role here. Um, some of it also is there seems to be this sort of mis in general sort of misconception about physicians and other healthcare providers these days about what our motivations are. So while there's always some bad actors in any field, the vast majority of us went into medicine because we want to help people. We've sacrificed a lot. We spent four years in medical school, at least three, anywhere from three to six years in residency with another two to three years after that for subspecialty training if we do that. During that time, we missed out on a million family events. I mean, I know I've missed weddings of close relatives and bar mitzvahs. I didn't make it to any of my kids' school plays because we were in training and that's what you did. And we did that because we generally felt that what we were doing is important. We're helping other people. We have, you know, as, as pediatricians, we, we have your children's best interests in mind. Sometimes my kids would even complain that I care about other people's kids more than I care about them because I spend so much time with other people's kids. And when our, when our patients don't have great outcomes, we feel it, we, we feel for the, for the child, we, we love our patients. So we, we want what's best for them. Um, and sort of trying to get families to understand that when we're recommending either a medication, a treatment or a vaccine, it's because that's what we would do for our own children because we think it's for the best for them and we're trying to do the best for your children as well. And somehow that connection got lost in the last couple of years. And I think it might, a lot of factors might have contributed to that, but I think it's important for us to try to reestablish that relationship. We, everybody in the room wants what's best for the child. So it's interesting, you know, you alluded to this, but I don't know, um, you know, I wanted to try to take it a step further. You know, there's, a, there's been a breakdown of trust between uh, patients and doctors. And I wonder if some of that is, is financially driven and uh, because a lot of people who don't trust um, physicians or pharmaceutical companies say, you know, they're just out to make money. And like you were saying, like, maybe they don't care about me. And um, what's interesting to me, though, is that in the United States, uh, we do have a capitalist and, and financial structure in our healthcare system um, where it's more of a business. Um, so it's possible that people perceive that, you know, maybe doctors want to make money. But what's fascinating is that in other countries where the healthcare structure is quite different and doctors are paid at a very different pay scale, they still promote vaccination. Right. Because we generally believe, we generally know it to be safe and effective and the best for our patients. And now in terms of, you know, accusations of the financial motivation, so I, like most physicians these days, actually are salaried. So that means I'm paid by the hospital that I work for. I'm paid the same amount whether my patients are vaccinated or whether they're not. I'm paid the same amount whether I see one patient per shift or 10. Um, so there's no, there's, there's no financial motivation for me to do more. And there's no financial motivation for me to 
to encourage my patients to get vaccines. I work in an ER. We don't even give vaccines in the ER except for like a tetanus vaccine for someone who has an, an injury or a laceration. So I really don't make anything off of vaccines. And honestly, the, just like, you know, just the opposite. My job is based on children getting sick. Like, I hate to say this, but I'm an ER doctor. I don't see well children. So I'm actually working against my own self-interest by promoting vaccines because I would actually much prefer that children stay healthy and not have to come and see me. I, if children are healthy because they're vaccinated, that's against my own financial self-interest, but I'd still rather it happened. That's interesting that you point that out, and that's so true. And Dr. Minkin, uh, to sort of uh, transition from what Dr. Nemetsky was just saying, um, so I've heard this accusation said many times um, that pediatricians have a financial incentive if a certain percentage of their patients are vaccinated. So you work in general pediatrics, so you do a lot of well visits and you do vaccinate a bunch of children in the office. So can you talk about that? Is that true? Is there any basis for that? Why is that uh, a claim that um, a lot of people are bringing up and that's sort of causing them to distrust their physicians and, and create this sort of idea of financial motivation? So first of all, I've never seen a penny extra from anything I do with vaccines, number one. Number two, um, vaccines are not a moneymaker for a pediatrician. They're often a money loser. In it's what not, way? In that the we have a cost of vaccines and we do not get that much for giving them. So you're saying that the in the pediatrics office, the pediatrician actually pays more to have the vaccine and be able to give it to the kid than they get back from the insurance company for giving the vaccine. We don't get reimbursed a lot. That's that's the bottom line. You can lose money on vaccine. Mm. Um, the, the other thing to keep in mind is that, I just want to go back a little bit to when you talked about how in other countries where there's socialized medicine, in those countries, there are people who also choose not to vaccinate. There are big anti-vaccine movements in those countries too. So it, it cannot just be this financial argument at all. That's a great point. That's a great point. All right. So you um, you both have given me some really great background about um, vaccination and then sort of the patient-doctor relationship and trust issues that have come up. And uh, with that in mind, I wanted to sort of jump into um, the flu vaccine. So the flu vaccine is one of the most controversial vaccines. I think part of that might be because it's something that has to be given every year. And so people are more likely to question that because First of all, it doesn't offer lifelong protection like so many of the other vaccines. And then there's the issue with people who are concerned about putting preservatives in their bodies or their children's bodies. And when you when you account for the fact that you have to give one every year, then it's, you know, in every year that they're exposing themselves or their kids to, to these uh, preservatives that are contained in the vaccine. And so um, what are you seeing, Dr. Nemetsky, in the ER this year during flu season, um, have you been able to establish yet if the flu vaccine is working, um, if the flu season is uh, one of the, you know, harsher ones? So I think it's certainly clear, you know, not just from my observations, there are my colleagues and other doctors at other hospitals observations, but even like CDC surveillance data has shown that this is a pretty severe flu season. Um, there have been so far, at least based on estimates that you can get, at least 9.7 million cases of the flu with 87,000 hospitalizations and 4,800 deaths. Of those, there have been 32 pediatric, like pediatric deaths in the United States so far this season. So those are 32 children who died of the flu. Um, and I can tell you at work, it's keeping all of us very, very, very busy. We're seeing many, many patients come in every day who have the flu. Some of them have, you know, a more mild illness, runny nose, cough, a fever, some body aches, and some of them are much sicker. Some of them have had to be admitted to the intensive care unit for respiratory support. Uh, some of them have pneumonia. Some of them have um, something called rhabdomyolysis. So that's where the flu virus is causing inflammation of the muscles or myositis. And if that inflammation is bad enough, you have muscle breakdown, um, which releases the the results of the muscle breakdown releases chemicals in the body that can actually cause severe kidney damage. Mm -hmm. um, and these kids are coming in with se severe muscle pain, weakness, they can't walk. 
Um, they have to be admitted to the hospital for fluids. Um, they have to have their electrolytes very closely monitored to make sure that they're not developing any kind of kidney damage or electrolyte abnormalities from all the muscle breakdown. I've also seen children come in in severe respiratory distress because they either have flu-related lung illness or they have a like a flu viral pneumonia or they have they have the flu and now they have a superimposed bacterial pneumonia on top of that because that is a common complication of the flu. Um, and some of those have also had to be, some of them have even needed to be put on high flow nasal cannula, which is a form of oxygen support. Some of them have needed to be put on BiPAP, which is another form of respiratory support that's sort of connected to a ventilator. Um, and they've ended up in the intensive care unit. And you've also seen kids who are just coming in because the flu, especially in children, can also cause severe vomiting and diarrhea. And they just get so dehydrated, they just can't keep up at home. So it's definitely out there. And again, like the, the severity can vary. A lot of people sort of think of the flu as just this, a cold with a fever, but it can be a lot more serious than that. Um, and it's keeping kids and their parents out of school and out of work. And so you're missing class days. I mean, even outside of work, my daughter tells me that half of her class was out sick this week with the flu. So that's classwork that they're missing. That isn't always, you know, some may seem sort of minor on the grand scheme of things, but for some kids, it's actually very hard to make up. And for their parents who have to miss work to take care of them, or for their parents who get sick themselves and have to miss work, that could also cause a financial strain for a family. On top of the already, you know, concern about having a child or having a family member who's severely ill. So the big question is, you know, in, in the kids that are getting really sick, have they been vaccinated? And like, are you guys sort of, I know it's not an official study, but have you sort of been keeping a casual record of like asking patients who are coming in with the flu if they got the flu shot? So I have been. And so the official like efficacy data that you get from the CDC generally probably come, will come out sometime next, sometime next month. That's usually when it comes out during, during the, like more towards the end of the flu season. But I just anecdotally, I've seen that. So some of my patients who come in with the flu did get the vaccine. Most of them who come in with flu illness and severe flu were not vaccinated. I've certainly had, certainly the vast majority of patients I've had to admit for flu-related complications, who, you know, who are sick enough to have to be in the hospital, stay in the hospital, did not get the flu shot. A lot of the kids I've seen who did get the flu shot but still got the flu um, had a much more mild illness. And Dr. Minkin, are you what you're seeing in the office, would that sort of go along with that? Is there any difference? I know probably if they're coming to the office, they're a little less sick than if they're going to the ER, but what have you been seeing this flu season? Right, right. We're seeing a ton of flu and the vast majority are in kids who have not been vaccinated. I do want to point out that the um, flu vaccine that we give now does not have a preservative in it. Oh, okay. Shouldn't be a concern for people. So you're speaking specifically of thimerosal, right? Yes, and uh, just in general, when people are concerned about, you know, what the additives that are in um, the vaccines, because obviously there's the virus that we're vaccinating against and the other components of the vaccine, different chemicals that people are afraid of um, that that are cause for concern for so many. Uh, so I kind of want to step back and sort of talk about how the vaccine works and that can help explain why the additives are in there. Um, so there are different types of vaccines. The, so there's your live attenuated vaccines, and then there's your, those that contain weakened versions, like weakened whole viruses, that, and that's sort of like the MMR and the chickenpox vaccine. So that's one category of vaccines. And the other category of vaccines are vaccines that contain parts of viruses, but not a whole virus, okay? And they work, they all sort of work the same way, though, okay? So the... Um, there are two types of flu shot that are out there, okay? Um, so there's the intramuscular vaccine. So that's the injected vaccine, right? So those are made in two ways. One is the vaccine is either made with a vaccine virus that's been killed or inactivated. So that does not contain a live virus and it's not infectious, therefore. Or the other, and the other version of the injected vaccine has specific, is made from specific flu protein. So it doesn't actually cr- contain a whole virus dead or alive it just has pieces of the flu um and then the nasal spray is actually made with a live flu virus that is weakened or attenuated so that it can't cause a systemic flu illness so that it cannot cause a systemic flu illness so the way these vaccines and actually all vaccines work 
is by exposing your immune system to either a weakened live virus or a dead virus or pieces of a virus to trigger an immune response. So it, it gets your, your immune system to recognize those viruses or viral particles or sometimes bacterial particles um, and generate white blood cells. Those are those protective cells of your immune system or anti and or antibodies that are specifically tailored and designed to fight that infection so that later on, if you encounter the real life flu virus or whatever you happen to be vaccinating against, your immune system is already primed and ready and has these antibodies and white cells already produced and ready to and ready to attack and prevent you from getting sick. Um, this mimics what happens, what people call natural immunity. So when you actually get sick with the virus or a bacteria, your immune system has a similar response. It generates white cells and antibodies to fight off that illness, but it takes a couple of days for those white cells and antibodies to really build up to a number enough to clear the infection. So that's why when you get when you get infected with something, you are sick for a while before you get better, and you might not generate those white cells or antibodies in time to get better. So the idea of vaccines is to sort of pre-populate your immune system with those antibodies and white cells so that you don't have that illness period. You don't have that at-risk period if you ever encounter the actual bacteria or virus. Your body's already ready to fight it off. Now, one of, and that actually is actually one of the reasons why you don't feel so great after you get a flu shot because part of triggering that immune system, when the immune system is generating those antibodies, it's also releasing a lot of other um other biochemicals and things that are called cytokines that part of that immune response is can be a low-grade fever can be kind of feeling a bit under the weather that's very that's temporary generally results in 24 to 48 hours and but you don't actually get sick some a lot of people don't realize that when you actually get the flu the fever and a lot of the sort of feeling under the weather that you get from it is a result of your immune system's reaction to the flu and not the flu itself, except when you have the actual flu, you then have millions and trillions of flu viruses causing havoc and destruction um, throughout your body too. So going back to uh, the vaccine lets you be able to fight the flu without having flu viruses running amok. Mm -hmm. um, causing destruction. So sort of going back to the way the vaccines are produced. So one of the things that gets added to vaccines are adjuvants. And those are chemicals that are sort of meant to turn your immune system on. Okay, so that's where the aluminum and all of that comes in. So those are kind of meant to make the vaccine to help it trigger an immune response so that you can generate those antibodies and white cells. Some other things that are put into the that are put into vaccines are things like preservatives. So those are meant so that the vaccine essentially stays fresh because, you know, it can be sitting in a vial in a fridge for weeks or months before it's given. And you don't want it to be contaminated. You don't want it to spoil. You want it to stay active and safe to give. Um, so that's why those are in there. Um, the One of the preservatives that people were worried about was thimerosal. And that was used in multi-dose vials to prevent contamination if you're inject if you're withdrawing medication and injecting multiple times from the same vial. Um, it's been proven over and over again that there is really no link between that preservative and autism, but it's been removed from almost all vaccines anyway. So it's nothing to worry about at this point. In terms of the other preservatives and adjuvants and things that are put in vaccines, they're very extensively studied. Most of them are things that naturally occur in the body anyway. So people talk about things like formaldehyde. Formaldehyde is actually a natural byproduct of the, all the metabolic processes that happen in your body on a regular basis. The amount of formaldehyde in a, in a vaccine is significantly less than the amount your body's making anyway. And it's, inc and it's incredibly safe. So these have all been studies that are, they're, that are, they are present in vaccines at levels that are so far below anything that could possibly be toxic that it's almost negligible and it shouldn't be something that people worry about and they're actually there in the vaccines to make them more effective or more safe so that is really really fascinating particularly the part about um, the chemicals already being in our bodies i think a lot of people are probably not aware of that and when you look at um you know, this information is a lot of times found online on various uh, websites, but also people like to study the vaccine inserts and they see a lot of names of chemicals that sound very frightening to them. 
Um, and then they say, oh my goodness, I'm going to be putting this in my body every year for the rest of my life to try to prevent the flu, which is just like, you know, a cough and the sniffles. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take the risk. So Dr. Minkin, I'm sure you got this question all the time. What do you, what do you tell people uh, who come to you in the office with a concern of, you know, well, why should I get the flu shot? The flu is just something, it's sort of like a rite of passage. You get it in the winter, I'm fine, my kids are healthy, we'll be just fine. How would you answer a mom who came in and said that to you? So I tell them that it can be a mild illness, but it can also be a very severe illness. And I tell them that we have children every year that die from it. So that the only thing that really makes sense is to get the flu shot. The flu shot is very, very safe. I do admit that the flu shot is not 100% effective. It doesn't always prevent the flu, but what it does is it makes it much less likely that you'll be very sick with the flu or, God forbid, die from the flu. So actually, you just gave me a really great um, opening for my next question that I was going to ask. So how is the, the flu uh, vaccine prepared each year um, in anticipation of flu season? Because I've heard many, many different theories on this. And, you know, the, the favorite thing that people seem to say is, oh, it's just a shot in the dark. They just like take a guess and they just like randomly guess about what, the flu, what strain of flu will be coming out this season. And then they just make a shot and make everyone get it. And it, it never even works anyway. So can you give us a little bit of a background in terms of how the flu vaccine is developed um, to best match the strain and why sometimes it works better than others. So the, re- the, you know, the reason the flu shot is different every year and the reason you have to be revaccinated every year is because there are different strains of the flu that circulate every year. Um, the flu virus itself actually is composed of just a handful of proteins, but they mutate very rapidly, very quickly, and they are present in different strains in different combinations. And that the the collection of strains that are out there does vary from year from flu season to flu season so the way it's sort of developed trying to get you know people say it's a guess all right it's an it is kind of a guess but it's a very educated guess they're not just sort of randomly picking flu strains out of a hat to choose and to put in the vaccines so every year during flu season um health agencies in you know countries around the world do what's called surveillance. Like they get for they have we have you know nasal swabs from patients who've had the flu, and they test and see which vi- which viral strains were prevalent that year, and based on the strains that are prevalent in this flu season, they can make and they can make sort of educated predictions about how those strains might mutate or change or be present for next year. The other thing that happens is you know it's flu season now in in the United right. States in the northern hemisphere. But it's summer in the south, in the southern hemisphere. Their flu season was during our summertime. So we actually have the benefit of these agencies being able to collect data from which strains they saw the southern hemisphere saw during their flu season. And that also informs the vaccine that they give in the northern hemisphere. So actually the vaccines you get on the north of the equator is different from the one they give south of the equator. Mm-hmm. Um, and each one is informed by what flu strains the other half of the world saw right before. So it sounds like so, it's kind of cyclical, like the strain is sort of morphing as it goes from south to north and back to the south and then back to the north. And so they're kind of like it, changing it, it based it on the way person. it's... Yeah. yeah. Sorry. It, morphs, it can morph as it goes from person to person. So there can even be genetic drift among the strains during the flu season itself, which in all of that is sort of why the efficacy of the flu shot can vary and why sometimes the severity of the flu out there also kind of varies with the seasons, depending on which strains are out there at any given moment. Um, So in this particular year, so far, based on the surveillance they've done in the United States at least, the most common strain out there is, so there's two types of flu, there's two main categories of flu. One is flu A and one is flu B. Within each of those, there's different substrains of flu A and flu B. Um, so just looking at some of the data that was released by the center by the CDC for this year, um, comparing what strains they've seen so far and how similar they were to the strains that were used in the vaccine. So the most of the flu strains that are out there, um, the four most common is a the most common one is a strain of flu B called B Victoria. 
The second most common flu strain out there right now is a strain of flu A. It's the H1N1 PDM09 strain. That's the same strain of the swine flu that we saw in the swine flu epidemic of 2009. It's back. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, those are the two most common flus that are out there this year. And then in somewhat lower numbers, there's another flu A, strain H3N2, and another flu B, the Yamagata strain. This particular year, so far, based on testing of the flu strains that are out there versus the flu strains that were included in most of the vaccines that we've been given this year, there's a very, very good match between the vaccine and the H1N1 flu A strain and between the vaccine and the B Yamagata strain, where all of the, you know, all of the viruses they've isolated from patients this year match the ones that they've kept that they put in the vaccine. Unfortunately, the match wasn't quite as good for the other two strains. So for the B Victoria one, they saw about a 58% match between what's out there and what's in the vaccine. And for the AAH3N2, they saw about a 34% match between what's out there and what's in the vaccine. So what that means is, as always, we don't expect the flu shot to be 100% effective. No vaccine or medication or any medical intervention is 100% effective, but it's significantly more effective than zero. It's not foolproof. It's not getting the flu shot will not guarantee that you don't get the flu, but it'll make it a whole lot less likely. And if you do get the flu, the strains that are out there are similar enough to the strain in the vaccine that the vaccine does give you some protection. Some of the antibodies and white cells you made in response to the vaccine are going to work at least to some extent against the wild type flu virus that's out there. So if you got the vaccine, even if you do get the flu, you'll probably do a better job fighting it and it'll probably be a little bit less, you know, less severe than it would be than if you hadn't gotten the flu. So that's really fascinating, the background on how on how it works. Um, and, you know, it, I've wondered myself why it is that a, a vaccine that, you know, doesn't match 100% still offers some protection. And I think uh, you've explained that really, really clearly. Um, another thing that comes up a lot in, in flu season is that when people do have the flu, they realize how horrible they feel, and they would basically do anything to get themselves feeling better, uh, get themselves, their kids back to work, back to school, get their families functioning again, and stop spreading the the flu to other family members. And that's where uh, Tamiflu comes in. And we've seen a lot of people who are desperate to get Tamiflu once they are diagnosed with the flu. Um, But what kind of uh, amazes me is that Tamiflu is also manufactured by pharmaceutical companies <laughs> and it's actually quite new versus the flu shot which is around for many many more years than Tamiflu. So Dr. Minkin, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, why people are more trusting Tamiflu than the flu shot? Okay, I do not know the answer to this. <laughs> it puzzles so it's me a mystery day. to all of us. I think what happens is that when people are asked about the flu shot, they're healthy. And they're thinking, I won't get the flu. And then they do get the flu, and like you said, they want to feel better. And so it's a different situation when you are healthy and you're faced with a choice of getting a shot or not, or you're really sick and you just want to feel better. But I have to say that from what I see, the side effect profile of the flu vaccine is better than the side effect of the Tamiflu medication, and and I'm not sure how well it works. So from what I've seen, um, they say that the Tamiflu might decrease the length of symptoms by about 18 hours, Um, and it hasn't really been, from what I've seen, it hasn't really been shown to do a lot more than that. Have Have you been seeing any other data, or in practice, are you seeing that people you know, have shorter courses or feel better more quickly than that? What What are you seeing in terms of the effects of Tamiflu? I know it's anecdotal, but... It's, it's, it's very anecdotal. I mean, I have some people that swear by it. I also have, you know, people that swear they don't need the flu shot. So again, it's, it's anecdotal. Um, I have seen a lot of side effects. A lot of people can't tolerate it. They, they get vomiting from it. Um, and... I had some scarier ones. I've had some hallucinations, and I had one kid, I had a a severe allergic reaction, Mm -hmm. which can happen with any medication. Right, right. And now there's a new one, Zofluza. Have you been prescribing that? It's only for 12 and up, so I've never used it. Oh, okay, okay. So we're not quite sure about that one. Okay. I haven't haven't used it either because it's very expensive, and 
most of my patients don't have insurance that will cover it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think the consensus is that the flu shot is better than the flu and also possibly better than Tamiflu. Would you agree? Defi- <laughs> I would definitely say it's better to prevent the flu than to have to treat it. Right. So if you get the flu shot and therefore don't get the flu, that's certainly better than taking Tamiflu with all of its attendant side effects. Mm-hmm. Right. And also Tamiflu is not going to treat the flu. It's an antiviral, meaning it modifies the flu. It doesn't make it go away. Okay. It, it helps prevent the way it, it only, it doesn't, it helps prevent sort of that initial viral replication, which is why it doesn't work once the virus has already had enough time to replicate a lot. So it, it's much less effective if you take it more than 24 to 40 out, 48 hours after you get infected. So there's a really uh, narrow time frame in which someone would have to go see their doctor and get the prescription and start on it uh, before it's going to really help them very much. Right. Okay. And even then, it's the jury's a little bit... Just depending on, for some people, I have found that some people it helped them a lot, especially if they took it very early. And for some people, it didn't help them at all. And then, like Dr. Micken said, they develop vomiting and diarrhea, and it's hard to tell whether that's the Tamiflu or it's the flu. Um, and some of them have developed hallucinations or delirium. And again, was that the Tamiflu? Was that the flu? But it, whatever it was, it didn't make it better. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, and just to, to backtrack to something that you were saying earlier, Dr. Metzke, um, there was something that... Um, I sort of put in the back of my mind, you were mentioning that um, many kids that get hospitalized because they have um, really bad effects from the flu, such as, you know, pneumonia and stuff. Um, You know, many of those kids have not been vaccinated. I wanted to sort of comment on that because um, I saw this this written somewhere and it bothered me a lot. So I don't know if a lot of people um, have have the same misconception, so I wanted to kind of clarify it. I read somewhere uh, on some uh, website of, um, I guess they had an anti-vaccine sentiment, and they said, people don't die from the flu. So, uh, it, it continued on to say that there was uh, falsified data blaming flu deaths uh, where the patients had actually died from pneumonia. Um, and you, you spoke about that briefly, but can you uh, just sort of um, give us a little bit of background on why it might be uh, misperception and what, what's actually going on when people sort of die from the flu? So people can die, die from the flu from a number of different flu complications. Pneumonia is one of the most common ones. So when you have a pneumonia and you have the flu, so either it's a flu pneumonia, so which means that it's actually the flu virus that is damaging your lungs right now. Um, or you can have a superimposed bacterial pneumonia on top of the flu. Anytime you get a viral upper respiratory infection or a viral pneumonia, especially with something like flu, that sort of makes you a little bit more susceptible to having a bacterial infection get on, um, sort of add on top of that. When you have a viral respiratory infection, you have a lot more secretions, a lot more mucus, you know, your immune system is fighting this viral infection that you have, and you're usually not hydrating, you're not eating that well because you don't feel good, and you're just not in, you know, your most healthy state. And all of those extra secretions in mucus is the perfect breeding ground for bacteria. So it's fairly common that you sort of start with this respite, with this viral respiratory illness, and usually when you have a viral respiratory illness, it, you know, lasts about a week and you start to get better, but sometimes you're not getting better, you're actually getting worse, and that's because somewhere in that time frame, the bacteria decided to take a bacteria decided to take advantage of the fact that you were already sick and had all this secretions and mucus for it to live in, and now you have a bacterial pneumonia on top of it. Um, so when people say they, you know, they had the flu and they died of pneumonia, well, they could have died of just flu pneumonia, right? Because the flu will wreak havoc with your lungs too. Um, or they could have died with a flu-related pneumonia. So in other words, a flu that was complicated by a superimposed bacterial infection that they very likely would not have had if they didn't have the flu to begin with. Mm-hmm. So those kids also, or adults too, those patients also died because they had the flu. So I think that's really, really important to clear up because that comes into play um, when we talk about other illnesses that we vaccinate for, like the measles, for example, um, where very often it's not the illness itself that causes the death, but complications from the illness. And I think that there's uh, been a lot of talk um, in the anti-vaccine movement um, or if people distrust you know, um, data collection bodies or government bodies like the CDC. And there's these accusations like, no, they skew the data and they say, 
that the people died of flu or that the people died of measles when really they died from pneumonia or they died of you know something else encephalitis or whatever but i think it's just very very important to point out to our listeners that when someone is sick with flu or measles or many other different illnesses it then puts the body in a weakened state um and so they can't easily fight off the complications and if they had not had the flu or if they had not had the measles they wouldn't have been in a position where they would have had pneumonia or encephalitis or whatever it may be so you know i just was hoping to give our listeners a little bit of an understanding about that right i mean another thing another complication i see with so with with flu um particularly in some of the pediatric populations that i've taken care of is so a lot of my patients have asthma um, asthma and flu is a very, very dangerous mix. So is any, I, one of my children has asthma and, you know, every time he gets a cold or a virus, it's, it gets scary because he very easily has trouble breathing, you know, very, he can get sick very, very quickly. Um, I'm terrified of him catching the flu because I've seen a lot of kids with asthma who, when they get the flu, they, it triggers a very severe asthma exacerbation and oftentimes they end up needing to be admitted to the hospital needing to put on respiratory support because it's you know yes they're hospitalized for their asthma exacerbation but they wouldn't have had an asthma exacerbation right now if they didn't have the flu right um so it's just something to keep in mind that you know even if it's not the virus itself that makes you that sick it's causing the thing that's making you that sick right and that goes back to the whole idea of herd immunity where people, you know, will often say, well, you know, it's my choice if I don't want to get vaccinated or if I don't want to vaccinate my kids, that that's really my choice because it's what I choose to do with my body. But like you pointed out in terms of your son with asthma or other people who are more susceptible to really bad complications from problems, these are the people that we're trying to protect. Um, and, you know, if a child is overall quite healthy, maybe they would have a relatively simple course of the flu. But if that child's brother has asthma or if that child's sister is on chemotherapy, you know, then of course, then you're, you're creating a situation that can be potentially much, much more serious or even deadly. And so that's where the, the whole herd immunity concept comes in because we really want to protect those around us in addition to ourselves. Right. And also there's a common misconception that healthy kids don't get sick from the flu. That's entirely untrue. I will tell you, most of the patients I've had to admit for flu and flu-related complications were healthy. It, it wasn't. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not only seeing really sick asthmatics or really sick immunosuppressed or really sick cancer patients come in with bad cases of the flu. I'm seeing perfectly healthy children who, you know, they go to school, they run around, they play, they do everything they're supposed to do. They're very healthy, and now they have the flu, and they're really sick. They need fluids. They need respiratory support. They end up in the hospital. They get pneumonia. They get rhabdo. But these, it's not like they had any other underlying medical condition that made them more likely to be at risk so we really can't predict yeah so we really can't predict who's going to wind up sick and you know even more so then it's so important to protect everyone to the best of our ability and i think another important population that people need to think about when they're thinking about herd immunity are so newborns so newborns aren't old enough to get the you can't we don't give the flu vaccine before the age of six months um and newborns have very very small airways and very small lungs that are not you know not as developed as older kids or adults their immune systems are not as developed as older kids and adults so when they get the flu they can get very 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 sick very quickly so sort of cocooning your newborn by making sure that everybody around them gets the flu shot is super important. And then another sort of related um, related category are pregnant women. So pregnant women who get the flu also get very, very, very sick. There's a lot of physiologic changes that happen to the body during pregnancy, changes to the way the heart works, the way your, your, lung, your heart function, your lung function, your total body fluid and, and generally changes that happen within your immune system when you're pregnant. And all of those leave you very vulnerable to the flu and to getting very, very sick from the flu. And so protecting pregnant women is also an important way, you know, an important thing for herd immunity, both you know making sure a pregnant women get the flu shot and also making sure everybody around them gets the flu shot. And it's so interesting because when there's a lot of talk about we don't want to put so many 
uh, vaccines into such a tiny body, into a body that's so immature. You know, when people talk about not wanting to <clears throat> to vaccinate their babies, oh, let me wait till my kid is five. You know, what's it, what's I think often missed in, in all that is that that's exactly the age when you right. need the most protection because they are the most vulnerable. So you can say, I'd rather wait till my child is five, but then you're leaving them so vulnerable when they're so at risk. It's much better to put a flu shot into your six-month-old than to let your six-month-old actually get the flu. And I think that probably goes for all ages, right? Yeah, and especially even the younger, like, pertussis in a two-month-old isn't pretty. You're much better off giving your two-month-old the vaccine. Mm -hmm. Same thing for haemophilus influenza type B, Hib, or pneumococcal, or all the other things that we vaccinate for in infancy. There's, the reason we give those vaccines in infancy is because infants are the ones who are most likely to get sick and possibly die of those illnesses. And we don't want to risk them catching them. So we right. vaccinate. Right. And I like I was saying before, I think it's it's incredible how, how that gets twisted so often. Um, and the point is missed, right? Like we're protecting the, the most vulnerable among us by vaccinating them. That's exactly the point. <laughs> if you wait, then it might be too late, you know? Like, yeah, so that always um, sort of amazes me when people say that. I think they, they're not looking uh, at the picture rationally. But anyway, uh, you both, both of you have given us so much food for thought. Um, I really, really enjoyed listening to uh, you both talk about uh, the, the in-depth um, way that the vaccine works. Uh, I think it's so important for people to understand that, to have a little bit of an understanding into what sort of research goes into it, because there's so much mistrust. And I think when people realize or even get, and, and you've only given us a small taste, but I think just a small taste like that is is so valuable in helping us understand that it's not just, you know, products being pushed out onto the market that no one has researched. That is just, you know, a guessing game and let's just make money off of this. But there's so much information that that is known before the flu shot is produced. And the same goes with any vaccine. They've undergone years and years and years of research, both pre-market and post-market. And it's it's unfortunate that there's become this culture of distrust. And, you know, th this is a whole other topic, which I won't get into right now, but I think a lot of that might have to do with the internet as well, um, as well as people, you know, trying to claim a, a lot of financial gain for these things. And I just want to thank you both so much, both for the work that you do um, in protecting the our children, um, both in, in the general practice and in the emergency room, um, I know that you both are, are mothers and super busy um, with your careers as well. And your dedication is really so admirable. And thank you so, so much for taking the time to give us this information. I think it's so valuable. I hope our listeners um, have gained from it. I know I certainly have. And I just wanted to thank you and have a great night. Thank you. Thank you. And we want to thank you for giving us this opportunity and also for creating your podcast, which I think will be very, very helpful for a lot of people. I hope so. Thank you so much.